Thank you for subscribing to The Warning Podcast. Every week, you will get a conversation with a newsmaker, thought leader, or someone we think will make you better informed. Today's guest is Jason Kander, the former Missouri Secretary of State, who was the first millennial elected to statewide office in the United States. He is an American attorney, author, politician, and combat veteran. We spoke about the highs and lows of public service, the importance of mental health, and lessons the country can learn 20 years after the Iraq war. Let's get started. Well, I'm really pleased today to be joined by Jason Tander, uh, who looks like a baseball player in I front just, of me. I just need a haircut. And and, I, am, uh, I am a baseball player, but I'm mostly a guy who needs a haircut. <laughs> you you are a baseball player, and we're going to talk more about that uh, as we get into the conversation, uh, because that's an important <laughs> thing. Um, <laughs> Thanks. But I want to talk about your book, Invisible Storm. And I want to start at your dedication. Uh, there's an important character in this book who takes this journey alongside with you. And the dedication reads, to Diana, my teammate, my soulmate, my best friend, and my hero. Tell us about Diana. Oh, thanks, man. Um, well, first of all, thank you for having me. I'm excited to do this with you. Uh, when you said nice things about the book, it meant a lot to me. I I, I have a lot of respect for you and uh, the fact that you took the time to read it and said all those nice things. Um, it, it meant a lot to me. And uh, and yeah, um, the book is a love story, among other things, because uh, Diana uh, has gone through this with me, you know, and that's anybody who's experienced either mental health challenges or had mental health challenges in their family knows that, um, like any health challenge, I guess, uh, you know, it's not just the person going through it, who goes through it, everybody else goes through it, too. And, you know, there have been a lot of years where it put a lot on my wife. In fact, um, once I got into therapy, as I talk about in the book, um, we learned that there's such a thing as secondary post-traumatic stress. So this wonderful gift that I gave my wife uh, was secondary post-traumatic stress. So even though she didn't undergo the initial underlying trauma, she ended up with a lot of my symptoms. Um, but she stuck with me through all that and and knew or I guess believed or had faith in the idea that she would get back the guy who, who she met when, when we were 17. And uh, I'm very grateful to her for that. And we really are best friends. We've been together since we were 17 years old and, you know, we've never dated, never did apps. We don't know any of that stuff. I mean, we're 41, but we seem much older because we don't know any of that stuff. Um, we've just grown up together, frankly. You, um, I, but you know, I, I didn't answer your question, Steve. You said, tell me about her. Like what? A, what a terrible first rep in this interview. Let me, <laughs> let me tell you about her. Let me get another swing, which is to Good say, recovery. yeah, yeah, which is to say, uh, she is this uh, incredible person who the first time I ever saw her, we were at a, a high school speech and debate tournament. Um, we were both in high school, otherwise that story is kind of strange. Um, and uh, and I remember being completely taken with her. But now, like what she does for a living is she's a professional speaker. She's a consultant and that kind of thing. We both went to law school. We both practiced for a short period but she's really uh, a business speaker consultant and uh and just like one of those personalities that when people meet they never forget her and uh and so she is my hero because you know like she dealt with uh, breast cancer last year but like 
she she handled it with such grace and everything that recently I was saying to her, like at uh we were like getting ready for bed and and I've been having this like back problem lately. And I was like, God, you know, I've really had a rough last year. And she's like, Have you? <laughs> you know <what> I mean, because <laughs> like she handles it so well that like I've almost forgotten that she went it's like i went through her having cancer like that's how our relationship works so she's pretty special um there's a lot of miles on the road between 17 and 41 yeah a lot of miles on the journey between the first day of basic training as a private as a combat veteran captain in the united states army a lot of miles in between there and we'll talk about some of that but i want to read a uh, section of your prologue uh, to you to talk about uh, what's an important theme in what I think is a very courageous book, Invisible Storm, um, talking about depression, talking about what happens to the soldier uh, when they come home, um, that we spent 20 years at war in America. We have a generation of veterans that could well live another 50, 60, 70, 80 years. And we wanna have as much as possible a healthy population of contributing Americans uh, who are not laid down uh, by, their, by their service to the country. And so reading, reading this, this prologue on October 1st, 2018, I walked into the Kansas City Veterans Affairs Medical Center and found my way to the small one-room office of a veteran service officer. Only two people in the world knew what I was doing that day, my wife, Diana, and my campaign manager, Abe Rockoff. I wrote my name on the sign-in sheet, pinned to the wall outside, and fell into line behind a handful of other vets, some young, some old, leaning against the wall in a hallway that doubled as a makeshift waiting room. All of us were new patients waiting to be enrolled in the forbidding maze that is the VA system. 20 minutes later, an overworked gentleman in a red American Legion polo shirt emerged from the office, glanced at the sheet, and looked up at me. His eyes widened. Whoa, he said. Yep, that's me, I replied. I pulled my baseball cap down a little lo lower as I followed him into the tiny office. I was relieved when he shut the door. I was hoping no one else recognized me, but there wasn't much, of, much chance of that. For most of 2016, you couldn't watch television anywhere in the state of Missouri without seeing my name. My new friend began to go through mental health intake questionnaire over and over. I found myself saying yes to his questions, and within minutes, he said, it sounds like you need to see somebody today. The next thing I knew, he led me down to the emergency department and left me with a triage nurse, a very warm, older African-American woman. She gave me a little slip of paper to fill out, and there were two questions on it. Have you had suicidal thoughts? Yes, I wrote. Have you experienced intrusive dark thoughts? If yes, for how long? Yes, 10 years. The nurse looked at my form. 10 years, I nodded. 10 years, she exclaimed. I nodded. Honey, where you been? Is that is that your lowest moment? Uh, yeah, I think so. Um... Yeah, that or a few minutes later when uh, when the, the psych resident who was like, finally, somebody who didn't recognize me, which was a relief at first. Uh, and then, you know, he's asking me my symptoms and I'm telling him. And uh, and so I think my lowest moment was right there when he 
when he asked me, he says, do you have like a particularly stressful job or something? And I was like, well, I'm in politics. And he's like, well, what does that mean? So I, I didn't want to give him like my whole resume. So I just said, well, you know, uh, I used to be the secretary of state and now I'm, I'm running for mayor. I was going to run for president, uh, but I'm running for mayor, but I'm going to call that off and come here to get help. And so this, this goes on for a minute and he's just perplexed because I'm at this point on suicide watch in a, in a little room where they've taken away all my belongings. And there's like a stainless steel toilet where, where I could pee and the nurse will like turn her back for privacy. And, and, uh, and I'm in these like, you know, scrubs they gave me that are like four sizes too big because they took everything else away. And he's looking at this 37 year old psych patient who's on suicide watch, who's saying like, yeah, you know, I was going to run for president. And I didn't put that together that that might seem kind of crazy. So then he starts asking me like all these questions about what that meant. And, and I go from like being relieved that he didn't recognize me to kind of irritated that he doesn't believe me. So then he says, he, he's like, well, who told you you could run for president? And I'm like, I don't know what to tell you, man. I spent like an hour and a half just me and Obama in his office. And he seemed to think it was a pretty good idea. And so then this, this fellow looks at me and he's like, Barack Obama told you you could run for president. And he says, how often would you say you hear voices? And uh, so that was probably like, it, it was either that or, uh, or the next day when I uh, announced to everybody that I was going to step back from everything. And I had this realization because it was like, okay, now I'm going to go pick up my son from school. I've told the whole world that I've got suicidal thoughts. I'm stepping back from public life. And everybody in the world is calling me. Um, you know, any boldface name you can think of is calling. I'm not taking the calls because I'm trying to focus on like getting better or not getting, at that point, I'm just trying to focus on like, okay, what do I do next? And the realization that was probably the lowest point, I guess, was when I, I realized, oh, I probably need my two friends who are with me to walk to my son's school with me to pick him up because they may not let him leave with me because I've just gone from being like a potential presidential candidate to just a guy who people think might kill himself. And, and so it turned out they let him go home with me, but that was a pretty low moment when I realized that was, you know, as I put it, a heck of a pivot in my personal brand. <laughs> so, but but an act of extraordinary courage to say oh, something thanks. out loud um, that you're not supposed to say out loud, that yeah. you have intrusive thoughts um, that are inextinguishable uh, around self-harm, that are fueled by depression. And so I wanted to ask you a question about depression, because I think people who have not struggled with it um, relate to it as feeling sad or the opposite of happy. And that's not what depression is. Why don't you mm -hmm. talk to us a little bit about what depression is and your experience with it um, before we talk about coming through that tunnel to the other side? Sure. Yeah. Um, let me preface it by saying sort of how, how symptomatically how it played out for me, right? Because uh, I say this because I want to distinguish it not for any reason of it, placing a value, but more just like I, I always try to make sure when I speak about this stuff that I'm speaking in a way where it is as relatable to as many people as possible. Uh, so what I don't want to do is just classify depression and then somebody with clinical depression listens to the rest of this interview and goes, well, candor got past it. Why am I not getting, you know what I mean? Because for me, 
my depression was a symptom of my PTSD, right? So like, meaning for me, and we'll talk about this, I'm sure when I dealt with my underlying trauma, it didn't rid me of depression. I still, you know, can get depressed from time to time, but I, but I don't struggle, thankfully with clinical depression. So for me, when I focus on dealing with the underlying trauma and dealing with the PTSD, the first thing that was relieved for me when I started treatment was depression. But I'll tell you what that depression felt like for me, um, which is, to your point, it didn't just feel like being sad or not being happy. It, it, for me, it really manifested as, uh, like an emotional numbness. And, and that is to say that, you know, I could, I was aware of feelings of joy, aware of feelings of happiness, aware of feelings of sadness or grief. And I could a little bit sort of feel them on the, on the edges, but it was almost like they were happening just outside my reach, or they were happening just on the other side of a wall. And I could faintly hear the voices coming through. And what I learned in therapy is that a lot of that was the result of those intrusive thoughts and those symptoms that I had from post-traumatic stress. My coping mechanism was to suppress those emotions. And it's sort of like, you know, I use a lot of military analogies, obviously, uh, I guess, you know, not, not surprisingly, but like, for me, I think of it this way, that it's like, it's not a smart bomb, that that way of suppressing it, that countermeasure, it can't like surgically go in and find the negative emotions and suppress those. So when I have these negative emotions or intrusive thoughts, what I was doing was, I was finding ways to suppress those. But it was like a, a you know, an area bomb. So it, what it did is it just it just canceled out suppressed emotions. So after a while, I, I developed this numbness because as I was trying to protect myself from these bad feelings, I was also depriving myself of the ability to have the good feelings. And so depression for me just sort of became this, this emptiness, uh, which also could, um, you know, manifest and did eventually manifest for me uh, as suicidality because, and that now looking back makes sense, right? Because it was like, I had PTSD that was untreated, undiagnosed. Uh, one of those symptoms among many others was I couldn't sleep. So I had all the shame and guilt and all this stuff and I couldn't sleep. And then if you go 10 years, you don't get a good night's sleep and you're depressed. Well, at some point you're going to be suicidal. And so I had to sort of unwrap those one by one in therapy. One of the real promising areas of discovery and treatment uh, for mental health issues are the use of psychedelics. Mm -hmm. And of course you have a, of a, a pharmaceutical industry that profits to the tune of hundreds and hundreds of billions of dollars and, and certainly isn't going to be open to experimentations around new disruptive forms of, of treatment. As a, as a public policy matter, um, and as someone who's experienced these issues, I, I, I feel like there's a big fight coming in the immediate future around all of these issues where we're going to have to think differently uh, as we understand more and more about brain science and, and frankly, how little we know about it. Yeah, I totally agree. And, and I actually see a way through it, but your point is a good one that that way through it is going to uh, come head to head with the pharmaceutical lobby, right? The, the way through it, from a clinical perspective, and again, like I'm not a clinician, I'm just a, a dude who's been to a fair amount of therapy, right? And and what I've learned, well, I've been to a fair amount of therapy and by writing the book and speaking about this, I've also been exposed to a lot of really interesting conversations with a lot of the top clinicians in the field. So I've gathered things from all of that, right? And I've had this conversation about psychedelics. I, I've i never uh, used psychedelics in my therapy, but 
had had I gotten to a point where I felt like that would have aided me, I have like I have no qualms about it, and maybe one day I will if I need it. Um, but what I've learned is is that I think the the best thinking we have on it right now is to make sure that psychedelics and and other um, sort of alternative therapies, uh, in which I would include like medical marijuana and um, even stuff like equine therapy and all the different things out there that they work best when they are combined with these three evidence-based trauma therapies, right? You've got the three main ones. You've got cognitive processing therapy, which I did. You've got prolonged exposure therapy, which I did. And then you've got EMDR, which I didn't do, but you know, had those two not worked, I would have moved on to that one. Those are kind of the main three. And most of the clinicians I talk to, like at the VA and others, what they say is there's a lot of promise in all this other stuff. But where things go wrong is when people just do like the psychedelic therapy, they just, and they don't do it combined with traditional therapy. Um, and that's when you're going to get some real false negative results out of that stuff. And it kind of makes sense, right? It's like, like I'm having like a back issue right now. Right. And, and so I just, you know, I've got an MRI to look at it tomorrow and I may end up having to get like a steroid shot in my back. And if I do great, but I'm also going to a physical therapist. And, and so that's the point of this, I think, is it's like, these things have to be combined with one another because none of those things are sort of a cure all by themselves. You have these scenes in the book where you describe being in back pain, which mm -hmm. um, I divide the world into two categories of people, the ones that have had back pain and, and those that haven't, and it's excruciating. Oh. And you have a scene where you're laid out on the floor, making fundraising phone calls with an, with an ice pack, you know, on you, unable, mm -hmm. unable to move and mm -hmm. you know, the joys and glamour of big time politics. <laughs> yeah, man. Yeah. You've seen it uh, up close and uh, it is never it, like, it's not even that it's never as glamorous as people think. It's just that it's never glamorous. <laughs> I mean, it's just like, you know, uh, it's just funny to me. Like, I'm sure I'm skipping way ahead in this conversation, but you know, I, I, get like people on social media and everybody all the time. I'm sure you get the same thing. People who are like, are you going to do X? And I always want to be like, if you could see my life right now versus my life, like you wouldn't ask me this. <laughs> and, uh, and so, yeah, man, I, uh, so you've had, you've struggled with back pain too. I've had, I've had uh one surgery, oh. one spinal fusion and, you know, probably a second in my, in my future. So that's, you know, but I'm a, Pilates practitioner now mm -hmm. and uh doing the things you you can do on it but uh you know no fun on the on the campaign trail to be to be in to be in back pain it's What's it's so happen? hard to think about anything else yeah. when every movement either every movement is painful or you're not in pain and you're like how do I stay out of pain? <laughs> so, so it's not been a problem for me for a couple of years. It's been a problem for a couple of weeks now and I'm hoping to nip it in the bud, but man, it is, it uh, definitely makes me feel like, Oh, I'm going to make sure not to take it for granted when I get past this bout of it. You know, I'm, I'm, um, I'm going to try not to. The, 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 the part in the book um, where you are talking about uh, coming out of the race, uh, you are correct you would have been elected the the mayor in mm -hmm. kansas city um and you do something that is extraordinary um you come forward and commit a radical act of transparency and honesty and you let the world in on something that is apparent to nobody 
who's looking at you uh, from the outside out. Because as you say in the book, you are very much the young man in the hurry. You are 33-year-old, top-tier U.S. Senate candidate. Uh, you're somebody who is being looked, talked about as uh, the way you would a baseball player, a natural. This is somebody that has the talent to to go all the all the ways from the right place, the right background, the the right service, the the whole deal. And so you you come to that moment of time, and something has to give. But talk to, talk to us about that that decision, and how do you think about public service now, right in the in the context of John Fetterman? Um, and I think a giant collective national yawn and a broad understanding that none of these issues should be disqualifying issues for, for anybody's uh, public service. And, you know, what's new here is we're talking about them. Um, mm -hmm. You know, for example, Winston Churchill, uh, somebody who was racked by clinical depression, um, Told them his uh, black dog days. Uh, Abraham Lincoln, somebody who was racked by clinical depression, obviously with no remedies, treatment, and no discussion of it, of it possible in the days. So, so talk to us about, talk to us about that moment um, where you come off of your plan, which I suspect had been very carefully laid out in your in your mind's eye. Is that Hey, I'm a second lieutenant. I want to make first lieutenant by this date. I want to put on captain by this date. Um, I want this experience. I want to be at this place by this date, and I want to and I want to be there first. And coming off of that plan, the humility that that it must have taken to to say that out loud. Yeah, no, I appreciate you saying that. It is doing that is one of the most important things I've ever done in terms of making an impact in the world. And you're absolutely right. Like I had a plan um, and it was really so much of it came out of after I came home. And of course I didn't know this at the time, figured out most of what I'm going to say in the next few minutes. And I figured it out in therapy. Um, but I came home with this feeling of, I got to go, I got to go, I got to go. Right. Came home from Afghanistan with that feeling. And uh, some of that was natural to like, you know, don't stay in one place too long, might get blown up. Like there was some natural, like be in a hurry. Right. But then a lot of it, I think in, on the career side was that I was always thinking about what I could do next because the present was not much fun, right? Like, like when you are actively spending your whole day playing whack-a-mole with these like intrusive thoughts and then, and then all night they're, flooding in because you can't keep your guard up while you sleep. And so you're having these nightmares. It, what, what I did like my self-medicating uh, was my career, right? I had this ambitious career in front of me and, and it's why I'm always really careful to say, cause I'll have people come up to me and say things like, well, you know, I, I turn to alcohol or I turn to this and they'll say it expecting some sort of judgment from me. And I always say, Hey, look, the fact that I turned to a, a hard charging political career is pure coincidence. Like had that not been in front of me, I, I just as likely would have chosen a substance like that, right? I was going to escape myself. And so I escaped myself as best I could by thinking about, well, if I run for this, I can do this. If this polling number comes back this way, we can do this. If I can, you know, hit this fundraising number this quarter, always thinking about the future, never the present because the present was no good. So 
when I, when I made the decision to stick, step back from everything, you know, I, I do give myself credit for deciding to do that publicly. I don't give myself much, not that I need it, but much credit for like the decision to take care of myself because that decision kind of got made for me in the sense that I just got to the end of my ability to do it. You know, I had been, I had been carrying this heavier and heavier and heavier load for so long that I just kind of got to a point where I realized, I think I'm done. Like, I don't think my legs will carry me any further combined with, I was really scared because now I was having suicidal thoughts with a much greater frequency. And those two things, go ahead, Steve. No, I, I was going to say, so, so when you think about, when you think about the future, having mm -hmm. had the ambitions for electoral office, is it something that you still have uh, open as a, as a possibility? Open? Yes. But I think about my quote unquote career completely differently now. Um, which is to say, I don't even think about it as a career. Um, and this is, I'm glad you interrupted to ask that because that's the most important part of your question, right? Is how has this shaped the way I view things now? And here's how I think about it is that I used to do lots of things either because I thought I should, or because they would allow me to have the opportunity to do other things. And now I'd never do anything so that I can do something else. Like I do things because I think they matter right now. And if I don't think that they'll matter, and if I don't think they'll make a big impact, I'm just, I no longer uh, feel like there's any accolades to chase. There's, you know, so for instance, like this conversation, right? Like I'm excited to talk to you, but also like, you know, I, there's somebody who's going to hear this. And, and they're going to go, because every time I do this, it happens. And they're going to go, oh, I had never understood what I was going through until you said it in this way. And that's why I decided to be public at the time. It's why I decided to write the book, because I could see, I could look back and see myself from now 14 years ago and, and see that had I read that book, then I would have gotten help then. And it would have made a big difference and things never would have got that bad. So for instance, I, I do the things I do uh, professionally now. Because I get to see the impact I'm making. And I don't think anymore about, well, if I do this, then I, you know, and, and what I always say is I'm like, yeah, maybe one day I'll run for president. But like, I used to say, but I'm not thinking about that right now, like every politician has ever said, and like, you surely trained a politician or two to say at some point. And I didn't mean it, because what I meant was, it's the only thing I'm thinking about. And now when I say I'm not thinking about that right now, it's true. Like, I'm just not. And like, maybe one day I'll want to do that. But that day is not now. Well, you can tell it's true. And you know what I'd say about that, right? There's this kabuki theater that takes place around campaigns. Mm -hmm. DeSantis is a perfect example. He's 100% running for president, right? You know exactly who's running for president. I don't I don't get the coyness in 2023 about the proposition. And there's, yeah. there's nothing that personally drives me more nuts. But but I think is more undermining of someone's integrity and their brand for integrity around being such a weasel around the most basic question, right? I, I can remember um, sitting, you know, because there's, I, I don't remember how the whole legal part of it works, but like when you're exploring a, a presidential campaign, you can say anything you want, right? Except, and that's why I'm running for president. And uh, And I remember sitting, in a bar in dc i was visiting dc and uh it was right after my meeting with obama 
and uh, and Jim Messina had asked to to see me, which I figured was sort of he was dispatched a little bit, right? <laughs> which I was excited about. And uh, and we I go to meet him at this bar. I don't remember what bar it was, but I remember saying to him, "Oh, this is an incumbent bar." <laughs> and he was like, "Yeah." I was like, "I ain't never been in these bars, right?" So I'm sitting there and like we're drinking wine, and I remember saying like. You know, he's like, all right, well, tell me the theory of the case. And I lay out like, well, here's how I would do it. And here's here's what the plan is. And then I came to the end of it and I go, you know, if I were to run and we both just cracked up because like <laughs> that because and because that, that's what all these people are doing right now. To your point, it's like they're all running. You just can't say the magic words. Uh, and it is rather silly. You know, when I when I when I listen to you talk and and I bring him up because we're upon the anniversary of of his death, which was April 12th, of 1945. But but Franklin Roosevelt, um, when I listen to you talk, your your revelations about the things that you just laid out, um, to me, become a massive qualification oh, for national thanks. leadership at this moment in time. And so FDR. And and you did not have this reputation that he had, but wow, what a terrible reputation young FDR had. He was hmm. aloof, arrogant, privileged, scheming, deceitful, untrustworthy, and then his political career ended hmm. with a polio diagnosis that that crippled him, and and the idea that he would be able to resume a political career, um, let alone be elected president, uh, when he when he was diagnosed in 1921, uh, was just unheard of. But he did. But along the way, uh, something extraordinary happened to him. Uh, a person who was as unlike the American people as any person who has ever held high office has ever been, um, met the American people. Uh, he met crippled children in Warm Springs, Georgia. Uh, he met uh, Black Americans in the segregated South. Um, and he developed an empathy uh, and a humility uh, that in the next 25 years uh, would turn this arrogant young man into uh, the greatest figure of the 20th century, and uh, certainly a person who has claimed to have saved democracy uh, and ultimately saved the world and created uh, this new world order that's coming to its end. And one of the things I've talked a lot about on, on, on this podcast is this extraordinary relationship that FDR had with both Churchill and the Canadian Prime Minister Mackenzie King. And he's laying out one night in the White House to his guest, Mackenzie King. Uh, and King always would go back and write down the notes of everything that happened because he understood he was with a world historical figure. And he's laying out the U.N. Declaration of Human Rights, the U.N. Charter. He's laying out his concepts for the collective security agreements from NATO uh, to globalized free trade, the end of uh, colonialism, so on and so forth. And he says to the prime minister that his ambition is not that all of these things will endure forever because he understands that they won't because nothing does. He says to King, he just wants them to endure for as long as everybody who is alive on the day the war is won 
is still alive. Hmm. And now the youngest of those people are 77 years old. And we are, it seems to me, at the hinge mm -hmm. of a uh, new era of history, uh, the reemergence of great power rivalries. And um, when you think about uh, the bellicosity of so many statements, Republicans in Congress talking about let's bomb Mexico, uh, you have the situation in Ukraine where a fair amount of people both in the media and uh, in American politics are clearly cheerleading for Vladimir Putin's aggression and and I think are not very dissimilar uh, from the boond in the in the late 1930s. And you have the Chinese in the Indo-Pacific region building a blue water Navy, uh, just practicing encirclement drills of, of Taiwan. And so when you think about leadership at a national level, you are a combat veteran, John Kennedy was a combat veteran. He kept the country out of war 13 times. When you, when you think about that decision of sending uh, Lieutenant Kander to war, mm -hmm. when you think about that decision of sending the next generation of young men to war, at a, at a moment at the hinge where an old era is given way to a new one, how do you think about those issues? Uh, it's a it's a really interesting question because my thinking on it has changed so much and yet not at all, right? And the way it has changed not at all is just what you just said, which is i've I've been on the recipient of those of those decisions, right? i I, I grew up in a way where my family did well. Like there was no politician who could make a decision that would take food off our table at all. So the first time in my life that I ever had any sense of what it meant to be on the receiving end of a politically driven decision was being told, oh, we don't have that equipment here in Afghanistan because that's been sent to Iraq. It's stuff like that, right? And and that was very, that was formidable for me. And it, and it gave me a, a righteous anger about decisions made like that in a way that are politically driven, right? So that has stayed with me, no doubt. Um, but the other thing that I came out of all of that with is this righteous belief that I was the guy, right? That like, it, it should be me. And I think that's maybe one of the most profound ways that I've changed my perspective on public service, right? Is that that whole time when I was struggling with myself, understanding that there was something really wrong with me and it probably needed to be addressed, but still feeling like I had no choice because I felt, you know, with the risk of sounding maybe evangelical about it, uh, it wasn't quite there, but like, I kind of felt chosen, right? Like I, I, you know, which I don't think whether people give voice to it or not, I don't think is that uncommon for people who run for president, right? Like- One, 100, 100%, and again, yeah. I think your your honesty about this is extraordinary because because any presidential run starts with this premise, right? It starts with somebody alone, mm -hmm. out of the shower, right. bare ass naked, <laughs> yeah, all, looking, looking all. in the mirror, <laughs> saying, "Yes, it should be me. Yeah, should I be should me. be the most powerful person in all the world. I should command the nuclear weapons arsenals." Exactly. Um, and it takes a, a special type of person who who wants that responsibility. 
And Steve, I'll tell you, I was in my 30s and I was damned sure of it. You know, like, I mean, I was, that should be me. There's nobody better, right? Now, I can still look back and say, from a purely talent, talent perspective as a political athlete, yeah, I mean, like, I think I was the best or one of the best. Like, I, I think that, I think if I chose to do it, I still think that. Like, but that's just like, you know, I'm uh, like, I don't know who, David Ortiz is like, I could still hit and he's right. You know what I mean? Like, but that doesn't mean that therefore he should do all the other things. And so I guess that the, the, what I'm saying is, is that I still believe those things, except for the fact, except for the idea that it, it has to be me because now I look at it and I've got, I've had this experience. I don't know if it's in humility so much as it's in humanity in the sense that like, I've had five years where I've gotten to be a regular human being without handlers all over me and, you know, coaching my son's little league team and driving my pickup truck and enjoying life and doing the things that I saw the people I called for money and votes do, but, and admired, but didn't understand. And now I do those things and I'm able to see myself in a more full way. And I'm able to look at it and go, okay, maybe one day I'll run for president. Maybe one day I'll be president. But if I'm not, I'm not wholly convinced that history will depend upon that and so in 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 a i mean i'm not convinced at all so now i look at it and i go okay who are the people out there who i am really inspired by right and it's like ruben gallego and wes moore and people like that who they do fit uh, the profile that you just laid out right so so that's you know they're combat veterans who have done things that are more difficult than campaigns and they're not me and that's okay and so, and that's something that I couldn't do before. And then to make this answer extra long, the other thing I've learned from it is, and this is maybe the most important, or at least to me, my favorite part of what I've learned, which is that there are so many other ways to make a huge impactful difference than the way that I initially chose, which was running for office, right? So now, you know, I, going back to what I said a minute ago about I spend my time on things that I can do right now instead of what sets me up to do things later. You know, I build villages of tiny houses for homeless veterans and I get to see the difference. You know, in the last year and a half, I kind of accidentally got involved in the Afghan evacuation movement because I was just trying to get some people out who I cared about who were over there. And it turned into this big nonprofit that has gotten over 2000 people out. And I can tell you that if I had been in the Senate or if I had been, you know, really active in politics day to day, I wouldn't have done those things because I would have been thinking, well, this looks really bad for the Biden administration. My thoughts would have gone to, what do I do to get on TV to protect the Biden administration from this? And instead, I ended up using my political capital to get everything I could out of the administration, burn lots of bridges I had, but to save 2000 lives, which is the biggest thing I ever did in my life. And so like, I'm good. One day, maybe I'll do those other things. But that's how I think about public service now. When you when you think about the Afghanistan withdrawal, painful? Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, deeply. Yeah, not not for the decision of it, um, and not always for the for the way it was handled. Right? I mean, like, I mean, a lot of it for the way it was handled, but not not exclusively because there's that we needed to withdraw, and there was no world in which it was going to go great. Right? And so I try and separate for myself personally, the politics of it and the experience of it, because um, the experience of it is, it's just traumatic to see, you know, and I think that's true for Afghan vets, whether they're politically engaged or not, it was just really hard and remains really hard. And, and I look, I still get messages, not daily anymore, but 
weekly from people who are still there and who are pleading for their life. And I, I, you know, am not empowered to help everyone. I try. Uh, and so it's, it's, it is, well, I guess the best way to answer your question is, uh, I've done two rounds of trauma therapy in my life. The first was in 2018, 2019, uh, which I wrote about in the book for, for my deployment. Uh, and the second was a few months ago when I went back to my therapist at the urging of my wife and was like, I think I need to deal with this thing that is essentially a second deployment that I went through, even though I never left the United States. And I did that and it was, it was very successful, but so, yeah, it was, it was difficult. What, what percentage, maybe it's, it's a, it's, it's a wrong word. Maybe it's a wrong question to ask it in terms of percentage. How, how deep is the moral injury to this generation of Afghan and Iraq veterans? Um, by the nature of how we left and the inevitability to the question, which I think hangs over Section 60 and other places uh, across the across the country, was was this worth it? Hmm. You know, I think it's deep, but the well, I think it's deep. Um, and I think we all in different ways, Iraq and Afghanistan veterans in very separate ways uh deal with the was it worth it question right and some of that is put on us so like for iraq vets um you know unfortunately i think in a lot of ways that that question is is not all that open-ended right was it worth it right because because you know we're at the point now where it's pretty hard to find somebody who's like iraq i you know you can't find anybody who was in favor of iraq <laughs> like there's plenty of them um but if people were, they're like, yeah, I was wrong. Or they're like Josh Hawley. And they're just like, oh, yeah, I was always against it when that's not true. And so our culture has sort of settled on a place, not a wrong place, but just a hey, that was a that was a strategic error. And I think it is harder, deeply harder um, for Iraq veterans to sort through that. And I and like my friend Stephen, he talks about it as I, you know, the way he handles it is he deals with it in terms of, you know, we were there for each other. Not that dissimilar to how Vietnam veterans handle it. It's like we did a thing uh, and you can take all the other stuff away from it, but we were there for each other and we got each other through it and we get e and now we're going to get each other through this part. And you can borrow some lessons from that for Afghan vets, but there is, I think, more nuance, which is good and bad for Afghan vets, which is that. And this is what I struggled with so much when the way it was reported in the media, the withdrawal, because first they had to do the big retrospective on the war, right? And they simplified it so much at first. They just basically made Iraq and Afghanistan one war. And then they told you that that war was basically Vietnam. And that was really difficult for a lot of us because um, it wasn't a strategic error to go into Afghanistan. And there were missions that we were given that were accomplished, right? Um, you know, we did keep another 9-11 from happening we did uh make so make it so that there was no sanctuary for uh, al-qaeda we we denied them that training ground we forced them into those mountainous regions of pakistan and then you know and then the military pursued them there and so we did those things now we also were given this assignment of nation building in afghanistan but even that is complicated right because yes as we sit here the Taliban have brutal control over Afghanistan, and by any measure, that would make the measure that would make the mission of building uh, a you know a, even quasi democratic society in Afghanistan a massive failure. However, to your point about what FDR and the way he thought about uh, change, there's 20 years of time where women were able to vote and get educated, where people people's lives were undeniably improved 
in most of Afghanistan. And that also counts for something. And I think that can then be borrowed back by Iraq vets. I, I hope that they can use that. So, so I, I'm giving you a wandering answer, but what I'm trying to say is, is that there is a lot of moral injury, but there's also just a lot of uncertainty. And it's why I do try to talk about this stuff, because as I try and talk, talk this out loud and help myself find a place, I, I think that's really valuable for other vets to both hear and to do themselves as well, as we all kind of sort through it together. I think one of the amazing aspects of the Iraq war, uh, which is different than the war in Afghanistan. One was a war of choice. One was a war of necessity. And I uh, agree with you on that. But that so many of the principal architects of it uh, were alive and participants in the Vietnam era. Mm -hmm. So a couple weeks ago, um, I was in Vietnam and I was at the beach and I'm literally looking at the spot with a coconut drink in my hand uh, where the Marines come ashore hmm. um, in, in Da Nang in 19, 1965. Wow. And, and, and the more time I've, I've spent in Vietnam from a historical perspective, the fact that Ho Chi Minh's Declaration of Independence was written alongside an American OSS officer. It talks about all men are created equal. It's our Declaration of Independence. We were, we were fighting these people because of why um all of the premises right were were profoundly wrong and and it leads to one of the great tragedies in the country's history to be repeated uh within a generation uh in Iraq which is which is extraordinary when you when you think about it and so the question is Will this generation of veterans, as it assumes political leadership in the country over the next generation, learn from this mistake or uh, are we doomed to repeat it? Or have we finally learned some lessons about the limitations of, of American power? I think we have learned a lot of lessons. Um but I, but I can't say we've wholly learned it, right? I mean, there's there's plenty of Afghan or Iraq vets um, in public office who are who are hawkish in a um, grandstanding sort of performative way. Um, but I, I, here's some of the lessons I'm pretty confident we've learned. Um, some of which are thrust upon us, and one is just a basic lesson about hesitancy toward war that it will last at least for I think a few more years, maybe a decade, hopefully. But that's thrust upon us by the American people. That's just 20 years of fatigue, whether people went there or not. Like people are like, whoa, whoa, hold up. And and that's that interestingly is seems to be one of the only bipartisan things in the country right now is people like, no, no war for a while, right? That's good. And I do think a lot of it is driven by vets. I do think one of the hopefully enduring lessons uh that that my generation of veterans uh, will take from this is the manner in which you go to war. So whether or not it keeps us out of war is another question. But when I think back on, you know, all of us experiencing Rumsfeld saying, hey, you go to war with the army you have. And and I don't think most of us are ever going to forget that. And And so I do think that while it may not keep us completely from going into war, I don't see us going in lightly in the way that we did there. I mean, we had this 
just clearly as a nation, this sense of like uh, incredible like arrogance ab about our own uh, sort of uh, bulletproof in this, you know, which invincibility. was yeah, right. Invincibility. Thank you. And, and to your point is, is especially remarkable given that it was the Vietnam generation uh, doing that. Now, what's interesting about that is when you look at the architects of that, when you look at the people who were really designing that policy, um, particularly when you look at the Cheney, well, I'm just, I'm talking about Dick Cheney and George W. Bush. Those are two people who were not in Vietnam. Right. And, and so to me, it does mean that having somebody who can't just tell you what, uh, what they read in a book or what, you know, or, or write you a, a paper about national security, but somebody who knows what it smells like to be deployed. Um, I do think that makes a difference in, in how much of a hair trigger you have, but also about how seriously you take equipping and preparing a mission of any type. Let me, let me focus on what I think is the dumbest decision of mm -hmm. the wars besides the decision to fire the first cruise missile at, a, at Iraq, commencing it in, in March 2003. And that is the disillusion of the Iraqi military yeah. uh, by the American proconsul Paul Bremer. And you talked earlier in the conversation about decisions and being infuriated by, by bad decisions. I know, you know, as someone who served in the Bush White House in 2005, was sent to Iraq uh, for a period of a, of a couple of months, uh, in detail to the ambassador as a political person, someone mm -hmm. who who ran campaigns. Um, what we mostly share in common, uh, the Jim Messinas uh, and of the world and, and myself, is we're all C students uh, who went to state universities. Mm -hmm. And and there's a hierarchy in the White House, right? There's the political people who are kind of your greasy, dirty, you know, <laughs> low operators in the high affairs of state you know, or, or left to the academics, the PhDs. Uh, there's a new book out, uh, serious academic work that looks at the Iraq war, war called Confronting Saddam and looks at the profound, and, and, and by profound, I mean fucking profound, <laughs> dysfunction of the, of the Bush national security apparatus under, under Condoleezza Rice. But this decision by L. Paul Bremer, uh, of Kissinger and Associates, you know, Harvard degree, you know, per usual. Um, mm -hmm. The idea that no more Iraqi army, you're out, no, no possibility of a job, as opposed to uh, report to your bases for giant pay raises, uh, new Ford trucks That's and right. mobile homes is, a, is an extraordinary decision. And, and that, that decision, that decision, by a man delegated to him by the by the president, the president and I worked for, mm -hmm. uh, caused America to lose the war in Iraq, one, uh, but but sentenced the country really to 20 years of of war. It's the foundational decision to ISIS. It's it's among the dumbest decisions that mm -hmm. any American has, has ever made. And I feel like we don't talk about these things. And it's important because we're on the edge of a whole season of new dumb decisions <laughs> you know, that, that, that lurk immediately in front of us that require some perspective. 
around the past immediate dumb decisions. And I don't know if you've seen it, but there's an extraordinary interview uh, with the person who holds Paul Wolfowitz's old job uh, in uh, with John Stewart um, huh. talking about the inability of the Pentagon to, to, oh, to pass, I saw a clip as an audit. And I yeah. and I think all of these things, you know, are, are tied to, you know, tied together, which was John Stewart's point across the institution at a bureaucratic level has nothing to do, mm-hmm. nothing to do with politics. But talk about that from a decision making you know, perspective, if you will, am I being too harsh there? No, but I, but I think it's, but I think that 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 decision, um, which was not made by anybody who was ever elected to anything, is the most consequential decision. Uh, I think that was made with regard to to any of these wars. Again, other than the the go order for Iraq. Uh, no, I think you're absolutely right. Um, and I think before I even get into the decision, you know, there's there what's the saying is you know those who don't study history are are doomed to repeat it my problem with that saying is that it assumes that in order to avoid repeating history we have to actually study it and it's just really damned hard to get people to study history and so what worries me is that we have such a cultural um like allergy to actually meditating on our own failures and our own mistakes and we have we have this this dire need uh, and, and including like within the Democratic Party, within the Republican Party, within the country as a whole, this like thirsty need to go back and revise everything and make it well, well, you know, it wasn't totally our fault, you know, and so and that's really, that's how we forget these things. So yeah, I'll tell you, that was the kind of decision that like, people at the low level in the army had you consulted them would not have made right like like i can remember being in in intelligence school just a couple years later um in 2005 and having um a guy come in who was you know he was an intelligence officer had already been downrange and he's briefing us on like an anti-terrorism block of, of learning right and he puts up on the screen like an org chart for a terrorism cell right and it's got and we're thinking we're in for this really technical briefing and he, he's got well here's the bomb maker and then this guy over here he's the spotter this guy over here he digs the hole he puts it in you know and he w- goes through all these all these positions and he goes all right now who do you take out? And everybody's got different theories on who they take out, you know? And then he's like, all right, how? And of course we're all like these young HUA lieutenants. So we're like, all right, well, we do like a four man stack and all this stuff. And he goes, no, no. He goes, take any one of these fools and get them a job. You idiots. He was just like, that's it. It's all it is. Get these people a job because they don't have a job. They don't have any honor or respect in their home because they don't have any money. Get them a decent job, employ them on the base. You're good to go. You've just broken up the terrorist cell. And, and that made perfect. You only had to tell us once and like, we got it. And so, yeah, I think it was an epically bad decision. And you had all these, I mean, look at what the Taliban just did. Like, I'm in no way, like I'm no fan of the Taliban, but look what they learned from the first time they took over. You know, these people who are running um, passport offices and whatever, you know, they're doing terrible things like sending the women home from government jobs, but who are they keeping there logistically? The people who were doing those jobs under the government of Afghanistan, right? The same guy who issues you your passport in Kabul right now is the guy who issued you your passport in Kabul two and a half years ago because the Taliban figured out, oh, if we don't make the trains run on time, it doesn't matter that we don't have elections. Like, they'll they'll get rid of us. And it doesn't matter whether you're a Western virtuous democratic nation or the Taliban. You have to make, you have to get the trash picked up. 
and uh, so huge, huge, huge blunder. Yeah, you um, you were you were widely famous as the first millennial elected to statewide office in the in the United States. I'm not a millennial. <laughs> I'm a I'm a proud Gen Xer, mm-hmm. and uh, the difference between Gen Xers and and millennials, as I explained to my kids, is that the millennials were never in a car on a bench seat between their parents who were both smoking cigarettes, no seatbelts on where your dad had a beer in his hand, yeah. right? Where you could lay down in the back seat. No one had a bike helmet. No one really had a plan. You had to be back by a, by a certain time. And when I listened to you through your book, uh, you are very much right. This archetype of the super go-getting millennial. Not a surprise that you're the first elected to to statewide office. And I have this observation um, that has taken root in the society, and I pick it up when I go and I, I talk to college kids. And um, you know, some of them want to have a career in politics, or they want to work in campaigns, and you know, they'll come and they'll talk to me and they'll, you know, and so then you did what in 1993? It's amazing. You did this in 1997. And, and what I say to them is that here's the best piece of advice I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to give you um, ever, maybe the best piece of advice that anyone is ever going to give you. You have no idea what's going to happen. Mm-hmm. You don't know. You don't know. Yeah. You don't know you're going to walk into a meeting, maybe meet your spouse, walk into a bar, meet your spouse. You're going to have some chance encounter. You have no idea what's going to happen. So so you can't be married to a plan. You have to be married to a philosophy. Mm -hmm. Right. That's that's deeply rooted. So at the at the beginning, I made a comment um, about. You look like a baseball player. And uh, there's a scene in the book. You're flat on your back. Uh, you're in pain, not at a not at a good place. And you imagine uh, that that maybe one day, somehow, some way, it seems almost like a fantasy, like I'm going to, you know, I'm going to move to Thailand and live in a <laughs> thatched hut, but I'm going to play competitive softball, um, but but maybe even baseball. Mm-hmm. And and you're doing that, yeah, man. Um, first of all, thank you for bringing that up and letting me talk about it. First, I want to like compliment you on how flipping right on my generation's way of asking career questions is like how you've just completely nailed it. And I, you know, and that was me. Like I can remember sitting in college, sitting in my dorm room in college, and looking up. This is embarrassing. I've never said this out loud. I don't think anybody would be surprised. And looking up like biographies of American presidents and seeing the same damn schools over and over. Because at that point, all the all I had in front of me was the next thing. And the next thing was law school. Right. So like I was like, okay, I'm going to control for this. I'm going to get on the right path for this. And and so I went to Georgetown for law school because, you know, it's not the sole reason, but like, I think it was influenced by it because I had gone to American university. And I think in my mind, that was not a sufficient pedigree for when it turned out when I came home to run for office, not a soul cared where I went to college. And if anything, the fact that I had not gone to Mizzou was a huge liability. 
<laughs> you know, so, yeah. so like I was so wrong. And now when I go and I give those talks, it's, I, I, I am with you, man. I get so many people who are like, okay, now you did this and then this, and I I'm, I'm the same way. My version of it is I say, look, uh, there is no path. So what you need to do is have nobody know that you think that way. And I just say, you need to go and get involved with the thing you care about and be the person who everybody always sees there helping, never asking, can I work on this? I, you know, I, I always tell them, I say, the, the surest way I know, I always knew that somebody was not really in it for the cause, but was in it for them, was when they offered to be the speechwriter. Because I was always like, you know, it wasn't until I was getting ready to run for president that I even had a speechwriter, like even running for Senate, it was pretty much me and my campaign manager coming up with it, right? Like only in the world of like the West Wing and fictional TV, are there all these speechwriter positions, right? So I always tell people, I'm like, don't ask to be the speechwriter. Say, do we have any yard signs that need to go out? And if you are constantly the person who is, is a utility player who will do that, at some point when you raise your hand and say, I think maybe I should run, people will be like, yeah, you know, he's been here a long time and not just, it's not that you paid your dues. It's like, oh, he's one of us or she's one of us. And and, and so that's why I always tell him, just go do things you care about and it'll work out. Now, now I'm not going to miss the opportunity to talk about baseball. So thank you. Uh, yeah, like I, I looked at that as it was like, there was a person I wanted to be. And it was the guy who coached his kid's team, you know, was a, there for his family and, and like play. I, there's this really competitive uh, adult baseball league here in Kansas City. And it's actually a national league and there's chapters around the country. It's called the the Men's um, Adult Baseball League. And it's got like mostly a lot of former pros, former college players. And I was a very serious high school player and then went to a college that didn't have a team. And I just missed it so much. And so I had this fantasy in my mind of being the guy who would do those things. Like, you know, I, I used to go and watch those games as a kid. And, but what was holding, what, what like upset me was I would look at it and go, it's not just that I, want to be that guy it's that i wanted to want to be that guy i wanted to be free from this feeling of my life isn't valid if i don't spend all of my waking time on all these other things and now that i freed myself of that underlying trauma and those that shame and guilt yeah man like i coach my kids team just like my dad coached mine and his coached his um i play uh, for the kansas city hustlers i'm the center fielder uh now i'm always working really hard just to stay the eight or nine hitter, you know, like, I mean, cause these, you know, I got guys who a few years ago were playing pro, um, but I love it. And there's the, for my mental health, like putting my, my, my phone in my bat bag for three hours and going out and worrying about whether we're going to win a game. And I do this like 50 times a summer and it's real baseball, you know um, it's, there's just nothing like it. And, uh, and it, I guess, and I mean, it's so crazy, Steve, I, I play, on these fields and at this place, most of our games where my high school career ended, like it's the same fields <laughs> and, and it's, uh, it's really great for me. I love it. Last question. Yeah. Um, we live in a time that is deeply cynical. Um, and I've often thought about my political career and, you know, when you, when you come down to it, you know, the moments of, of great tension, you know, that I've been involved in over and over again, I think, you know, when I replayed in my head, have been this conflict between idealism and cynicism. Mm -hmm. And I, I have become and have been at various times at varying degrees, 
very, very cynical about politics, uh, but have have never been cynical about the country. Um, been idealistic about the country and 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 on most days, I'm optimistic about about its about its future. But I think that we have a real crisis ahead of us. We have tumultuous years in front of us. Uh, and the general condition is going to get worse uh, before it gets better. But I wanted to check in with you on that. When you when you look out down the down the road, you know how do you, how do you see things shaping up over the next decade? And 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 more broadly, um, being an American means what to you? And I was always struck by John McCain. Uh, who who deeply meant this when he when he said it? He said, "You know, I've I've had all sorts of titles and and everything else, but really the only one that you know has has ever mattered to me is is the one that lets me uh, be able to say my fellow Americans." Yeah, uh, let me start with with that because I've been struggling with what the answer is to what it means to be an American right now, and that really is for me, the jumping off point about how I feel about the future and whether it's cynicism or idealism. And, and it is to say this, is that my greatest concern for the future of the country right now, there's lots of, you could, you could list lots of them because a lot of them are logistical. They're about, you know, you can go to the filibuster or voting rights or gerrymandering. You could do all that stuff, right? But my greatest concern is at a very deep level, and it comes down to the fact that I think it is so difficult for people to answer the question what it means to be an American in a way that is not cliche right now and that holds meaning. And I think it's it's particularly the case now more than ever, because what does it mean, right? It's like, what do we all have as a shared experience? So it's like most people like Taylor Swift and like one in three of us watch the Super Bowl, right? Um and we're increasingly all have to come to reckon with what life is like amidst all these mass shootings. And, and when I say it that way, it sounds really cynical, but I don't mean it cynical. What I mean is I think we have an urgent underlying problem that is so much more than mechanical. It is so much more than how do we make sure that everybody gets a chance to vote? How do we make sure that everybody cares? What do we do about this diverging technology that is making it so that it's no longer the case that when you go to work, there's a one in three chance you and your coworker not only got the same news, well, there's a three in three chance you got the same news is how it used to work, but a one in three chance you got it from the same newscaster the night before. All that's gone, right? So what I think about a lot is our lack of shared experience and the fact that Americans don't know each other anymore. And it's why I haven't figured out how to do it yet, but I really want to do everything I can to at some point get a real national conversation going about universal service. Because to me, um, the best thing we could do as a country to heal so many of these cultural rifts and get us back to the, where we where we were going, not like with injustices and the way there's plenty of so many things that we've made enormous progress on, but our lack of national identity which I don't mean as a substitute for multiculturalism, like multiculturalism and diversity are wonderful things, but a sense of how to answer that question you asked, what does it mean to be an American so that you could have a similar answer from people of all sorts of different backgrounds. To me, that comes back to the fact that this is the longest consecutive period in American history now by far, 
without some form of mandatory service for some part of the population. And that means that we just are, it's so much easier right now to look at people who see things differently than you and dismiss them and say they're bad. And, and I don't understand them. And most importantly, and I don't have to, and, and I put this on liberals like me just as much. Now, look, I think one side is right and one side is wrong, but the responsibility of having to understand people who don't see the world you do the, the way you do and have an experience of the way you do. I don't think that that is that responsibility escapes any of us, but I don't think we're going to do it on our own. Now, what makes me feel idealistic about it is that while most people assume this cannot happen in America, when I look at the rising generation, particularly generation Z, and I talk to them about this kind of stuff, they are they are thirsty for this sort of responsibility, whether it is ever thrust upon them as a universal service or not. I see, unlike my generation or your generation, I see that generation increasingly trying to use technology to bridge gaps and to get to know what life is like for people who are not like them and close that space, uh, which is a big difference. And that that ultimately is what I come home to. Now, I'm starting to sound like a person who's getting older, right? Because I'm basically rounding into young people make me feel uh, inspired about the future of the country. But that's the truth is that when I spend time around like high school kids who when I was there, you know, look, I was a guy who ended up wanting to be president. But when I was in high school, like I cared about baseball and girls and nothing else. Right. And I meet increasingly and i didn't know what was going on in the news unless it was happening in a debate tournament right so unless i needed it for that but when i look at like just the average kid that i talk to who's in high school right now they know what's going on in the world and they're interested in it and they're most importantly interested in people's lives who are not like theirs not exclusively but for the most part and that does make me feel like there is a way through this and that's kind of what i hang my hat on we'll leave it there Jason Cantor, good to be with you. Thanks for the time. Steve, this was awesome. Thanks, man. I, I respect you a lot, and I, I really uh, appreciate the chance to have this conversation. You bet. Thank you. Thank you.